Well, good morning and welcome again to Calvary Bible Church. Uh, this is our fourth lesson in early American church history, and I am glad that you are uh, tuning in to watch us online. And once again, let me just tell you uh, on behalf of the elders that we uh, miss you guys and we love you guys and we are eagerly anticipating uh, the opportunity for us to gather again together as a congregation. So um, just know that our family loves you and we miss you. Um, so today, uh, once again, like I said, this is our fourth lesson on church history. I want to give a little bit of introduction first before I read the scriptures and pray. Uh, last week, we talked about the church kind of in the second and third generations in America after um, it's the original colonies were established in America. And we kind of talked about some of the ways in which the church itself was waning in its influence in society. And it kind of sets the stage for this topic that we're going to talk about now, and that's the Great Awakening. So why is this event called the Great Awakening? I think it's very important for us to consider why it's referred to as that. We will um, conclude that this is one of the most important events in the history of the church in America. Not only was it impactful to the church itself and the life of the church, but it also helped to shape American culture in the 1700s prior to um, the American Revolution. Um, it helped to make America um, more evangelistic, and it helped pave the way for what we would call American evangelicalism. So we'll, we'll talk about that and how that's distinctive in the future. But here's a, I gave you a handout again this week. I hope you got it. You should have received it via email. It's three pages. And um, I gave you this first uh, definition from a church historian by the name of Mark Knoll about what the Great Awakening is. So just one overarching statement before we start digging into the details of it. So the Great Awakening is the colonial revival was called a Great Awakening because it touched so many regions in so many aspects of colonial life, it was an upsurge of revivalistic piety more than a distinct event. And it was vastly important for both the churches and American society. The awakening was made up of both local revivals, but it also had two national leaders who are George Whitfield, the itinerant preacher, and Jonathan Edwards, the pastor theologian. So it's kind of this idea of this, there's this, uh, these local revivals take place. Uh, Whitfield is involved in many of those in um, the Great Awakening. And then Jonathan Edwards is the one that kind of gives the voice and the theology behind uh, the Great Awakening, what's happening primarily in his area of New England. So today's lesson, what we're going to talk about are the following. We're going to talk about the English beginnings of the Great Awakening, primarily um, the involvement of the Wesleys in the life of George Whitfield, And then secondly, we're going to talk about the great, great Awakening in America with an emphasis on the ministries of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. A uh, couple shameless plugs real quick. Uh, on the third page of your handout, there is a list of references. Uh, I do recommend for Edwards this book by Stephen uh, Nichols, and it's just about the life, thought, and uh, writings of Jonathan Edwards. I would, it's an easy read. I would suggest you pick that up. There are 
larger um, volumes about Edwards uh, if you want to, want to invest even more time, but I would recommend Stephen Nichols on Edwards. I would also recommend the shorter book by Arnold Dalimore about George Whitfield. Uh, it's God's Anointed Servant in the Great Revival of the 18th Century. There's actually two versions of this book. One's a lot thicker, and this uh, more compact one as well, and that's easier for me to get through, so that's why I recommend that to you. Uh, a second shameless plug would be that Pastor Dan, as many of you know, traditionally uh, preaches a biography each year, and he has actually preached biographies on both of these men in the past. So if you want to be a, go on our website and look up past sermons, you can select biographies and find them. Uh, Pastor Dan preached on Jonathan Edwards on January 12th, 2014, and then on Whitfield on January 21st of 2018. So uh, these brothers of ours throughout history have been taught about a lot, including by Pastor Dan. So I would commend his messages to you as well. So as we uh, talk about these things today, we'll be looking towards next week. Uh, we will talk about, well, I'm not going to be able to finish uh, the section on Whitfield today just for time constraints, but we'll also talk next week about the results of the Great Awakening and its impact on the colonies as they headed towards the revolution. So all that was introduction. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to 1 Timothy 1, uh, 12 through 17. Uh, one of the doctrines, as uh, Jonathan Edwards was a young man, that he uh, found uh, difficult to understand was God's sovereignty. And at the conclusion of this section of Scripture, uh, the doxology that Paul uses at the end is part of uh, the way the, the Lord opened Edwards' eyes and he became a Christian and a believer in uh, the sovereignty of God. So let me read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And this is kind of uh, Paul's biography as well. And he says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had hated, or because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for uh, for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And after all that, Paul leads us in a doxology as we read this in praise to God for who he is and for his sovereign work. And this is what so motivated um, Edwards at the time. And Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Scripture in verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Also, I, um, I picked that passage because it has a lot of meaning toward, to uh, Jonathan Edwards, and he's one of our primary topics today. 
But I also picked, and you have this on your handout as well, a prayer that Edwards wrote um, in his uh, pleading with the Lord to revive um, the church and to bring many people uh, to salvation. And this prayer, I think, is, is timely for us as well as we pray it. So follow along with me as I read this prayer and we pray to the Lord. Our Father, in this time of need, we pray for your power, mercy, and faithfulness. The interest of vital piety has long been in decay, and error and wickedness prevail, not only in the world, but also in your church. But we believe, O God, that when your church is in a low state and oppressed by her enemies and cries to you, you will swiftly fly to our relief as birds fly at the cry of their young. So we pray, our Heavenly Father, for the true reviving of your church among us, so that we would not be weak, dull, and lifeless, but in good, earnest, fervent in spirit, with our hearts vigorously engaged in loving and serving you and our neighbors. And we pray to you, O God, Lord of the harvest, that you would send out your workers into the fields of this world, and soon the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We pray this for your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen. Just a, a wonderful play, prayer that pleads with the Lord uh, for his work to save and to bring about what he wants to accomplish through his church. <clears throat> so, the next few things we're going to talk about here are going to be um, just what are the roots of the Great Awakening. And really, we have to, in order to do that, we have to trace uh, kind of the spiritual heritage and biography of, first, of uh, George Whitfield. So let's talk about Whitfield for a second. Um, and I'm, I can't, I wish I could, and um, read or give you an entire biography of both of these brothers, but that is not the main objective today. The main objective is to talk about the awakening. Uh, however, it's important to note that George Whitfield, um, as a young man, was quite accomplished. He uh, was not a child from a family with very many means, but he did end up at Oxford for his studies, and there he became involved with a group of people led by John and Charles Wesley that was coined the Holy Club. So, uh, Charles was the, the founder of this club, Charles Wesley, and soon enough his brother John got involved and became a co-leader. At that time, John Wesley was already a graduate of Oxford, and he was an Anglican priest. These guys, so both the Wesleys and George Whitfield and several other people, um, as members of the Holy Club, devoted themselves to live holy and sober lives unto the Lord. And they did this by practicing certain things. They would have and receive weekly communion. They desired to be faithful in their private devotions. Uh, they did uh, social work. They ministered to prisoners. They spent uh, upwards to three hours daily in prayer together as, a, as members of the Holy Club and Bible study and discussion about spiritual things and spiritual books. And these things, they, these were the things they did to promote holiness in their life. And it ended up being called that these were methods that they used in order to promote holiness. And eventually these guys got coined with a different phrase, and that was called the Methodists. So this is where we get uh, the Methodist movement. Uh, it starts with 
John and Charles Wesley in England, and Whitfield is involved in this Methodist movement. Uh, like I said, John Wesley was an ordained Anglican priest, so he is practicing his methods within the Holy Club as part of the Anglican Church in England. Um, eventually, though, Wesley, uh, both the Wesleys make a decision to pursue other opportunities in America. Uh, they are actually called by a man by the name of James Oglethorpe, who served as not only as the founder of the colony of Georgia, but also as its first governor. He asked them to help um, in the colony. Colonies established, you need pastors and priests to be involved to make sure that the spiritual well-being of the people are taken care of. Georgia actually was founded by uh, Governor Oglethorpe and a group of other Christians as primarily a colony for people convicted of, uh, of, of debt, being debtors in England. And this gave these people, as they came from England to uh, Georgia, an opportunity to establish a new life. And the Wesleys served as pastors for these uh, colonists. Um, However, there's, 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 a, there's an interesting story about uh, Wesley and his trip over, and as he served as the chaplain of the ship that came over, and he started becoming under the influence of a group of people called the Moravians, which is a German uh, pietist group of Lutheran leanings. Uh, when I say pietist, they were just devoted to um, outward um, serving of the Lord, and they were very similar to Wesley in the sense that they desired to um, follow the Lord through specific methods. Um, but through the influence of the Moravians, Wesley, John, began to question if he was truly a Christian. So just think about that. Wesley was doing all these uh, things to contribute to his holiness, yet he wasn't confident that he was a Christian at this time. Um, one of the Moravians even act actually uh, asked him, he said, hey, would you... Are, did Jesus die for you? And he said, I know that Jesus came to save sinners, yet he uh, could not faithfully answer whether Christ had saved him individually. Uh, yet he still served in Georgia as a pastor, and he failed. Uh, he got involved with a young woman who decided to marry someone else, and he was distraught to not be able to marry this woman. And he sought revenge on uh, this young woman and his, her new husband, and he, they, Wesley had the power to withhold communion from them, and he, uh, that was something that the, the colonists really got upset about, and they kicked him out. And it was really a disappointing time for him in Georgia as a whole. He had lived this life for the previous couple years as a member of the Holy Club and as the leader of the Holy Club, and he expected his congregants in some ways to behave like a member of the Holy Club. Uh, but yet, for him personally, he failed, ultimately, because he was trusting in his own righteousness and not that of Christ's. So Wesley returns to England, and there he begins a further friendship with a Moravian pastor who challenges him. And that pastor invites him to a meeting at a, what we would call a revival at Aldersgate. And there, the Moravians are reading Luther's commentary on Romans and there, for the first time, he confessed his need for Christ, and that he, and at that time, he trusted Christ alone for salvation. Interesting note in history as well, just a few days before that, his brother Charles 
who had a similar testimony leading up to this time had been converted as well as he was reading Luther's commentary on Galatians. So interesting that both John and Charles Wesley were converted in the reading and the explanation of Luther's works about the scriptures and the true gospel. Wesley takes up the role of an evangelist, and eventually he is invited by his friend George Whitfield, who had, who had taken over the Holy Club as he went to uh, America. Um, he was invited by Whitfield to do revival meetings with him. So, so Wesley is uh, this very important figure, and he's going to establish a new denomination in England, which will be Methodism, uh, decades later. It's not his desire to separate from the Anglican Church, but instead, just like the Puritans, he's trying to revive uh, the spiritual life of the church in England. Uh, so he takes up his role as an evangelist to do that, um, and he starts following his friend Whitfield, who had also been doing that. Uh, Whitfield had graduated from Oxford. He had become an ordained Anglican minister as well, yet his crowds were pretty large, and when he went different places throughout England and Scotland and Wales to preach, um, the groups oftentimes that came to see him were greater than the capacity of the local churches. So he began to preach outdoors, which was just shocking at the time. Um, I think in the 1600s, the mid-1600s, John Bunyan did similar things. We know Bunyan is the author of Pilgrim's Progress, but Whitfield as a as a as an Anglican pastor, um, him preaching outside was shocking for the people. Um, so he became an evangelist as well, and he received an invite to go to to America as well at some point in 1739. He goes there and he lets Wesley take over his preaching mission in um, in Great Britain. So interesting thing about Wesley and Whitfield. Um, and this is not the main topic of our conversation, but they ultimately get to a point where they have to divide, they disagree on theological, um, in a theological area, and the primary way that they, dis area that they disagree in is the doctrine of salvation. Who does what in salvation? Um, is, is God the one who saves completely, or is, does man have some involvement in that? So your basic Calvinist-Arminian debate, and on some level, uh, Wesley takes up the Arminian view, and Whitfield takes up the Calvinist view, and yet they're both faithful to preach uh, the need for the righteousness of Christ and the gospel, but they disagree on the fundamentals of the gospel. So Whitfield uh, comes to America in 1739. So just a little bit about what's going on in the colonies from, let's say, 1700 to the time that Whitfield comes on board. One thing we need to admit is that there was just a major population growth from 1700 to 1750. Some of these stats will uh, be staggering to you. In New England, upwards to 90,000 people had settled in England by the time um, 1700 had dawned. Midway through the century in 1750, that number was 360,000 people. In the middle colonies, we're talking about New York, Delaware, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, um, 1700, there was 50,000 people. By 1750, there was 270,000 people. We're talking five times as many people were there. 
And in the South, just an extravagant amount of growth as well. There was 100,000 people in 1700. So the South would make up Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia primarily, Maryland. Um, but there was 100,000 people in 1700. Upwards to 500,000 people were residing in those southern colonies. So just an explosion of population growth in America by 1750. Also, it was a very prosperous time um, in general. People were increasingly uh, more and more wealthy. It gave them more opportunity to be leisurely. And when there's leisure, oftentimes uh, there's a neglect of spiritual things, and uh, that's probably a true statement. Um, prosperity was booming, especially in the South, for the white people, because much of the work were, was being done by enslaved people. Um, urban centers had grown extensively throughout the Atlantic coast. Uh, we're not, the, the, the people are not coming and moving to the frontier yet. I mean, that's kind of a late, that's a post-revolution and uh, early 1800s movement. But people are all primarily settling on the Atlantic seaboard. And so there's uh, a lot of urban centers that are growing at that time. And, and I think it would be appropriate to say that religious activity had waned. It had almost become stagnant. We can see this just by the way that Edwards and his family wrote in New England. Why did religious activity wane? Several reasons. We talked about some of it last week, but here's a few more. Uh, just the, the Enlightenment uh, was beginning uh, in the, on the continent and in England, and that was impacting um, uh, people's spiritual activity. Uh, they were questioning the veracity and truth of the claims of the faith. Uh, people had uh, an ease of living about themselves because of their wealth. Uh, Edwards referred to the people being dull towards the gospel when he became a pastor in 1727. Um, Harvard, which was um, uh, created to train pastors, had become had become um, had failed and started declining as an orthodox institution. Um, because of that reason, in 1701, uh, the university or the college of Yale was established to uphold the orthodox faith in 1701. And that eventually is the school that Jonathan Edwards goes to instead of Harvard. Um, and then we talked about last week, we talked about the Quakers and the Baptists, and then you have people from other parts of Europe, uh, some of those being areas of Europe where they were persecuted and they came to the U.S., or excuse me, to the American colonies. So there was kind of this denominational melting point. There was less strife between the denominations in the 1700s compared to the mid-1600s. So all this kind of makes up what's going on in the Americas in the early 1700s. Yet Edwards and Whitfield aren't the first people uh, that see the fruit of revivalistic-type preaching. There's two guys, one from New Jersey and one from Pennsylvania. The one from New Jersey is a Dutch Reformed pastor by the name of Theodore Frelinghuysen, and he urgently pre preached the gospel with zeal and fervor. He pled with people to repent and receive Christ, and he believed in the doctrines of grace. So this emphasis on God's work, God, what God is doing in salvation, but also passionately pleading with people, being very evangelistic, in his preaching. Uh, the second guy uh, was Gilbert Tennant, and he was a Presbyterian pastor from Pennsylvania. And he and Frelinghuysen had created a good bond and unity. 
and uh, their neighboring, their, his church and neighboring churches began to experience revival because of his faithful preaching of the gospel. These men stressed that true Christians should experience conversion or the new birth. You weren't just born into being a Christian. God has to change the sinner. He's got to remove the heart of stone and give him a heart of flesh. So in that way, these guys are preaching similar to the Puritans that came originally who needed to, who, who wanted to verify uh, that the members of their congregation, the members of their commonwealth were in fact Christians. You needed to be able to give a profession of faith of what the Lord has done to change you. Um, so these guys are kind of building on that. But this is the idea is that a profession of faith that, that someone needs to be converted that's not to say those should be drummed up, but it should be, people should be converted and should profess Christ as they hear the gospel faithfully proclaimed. Their goal, these guys, Tennant and Frailing Heisen, their goal was to preach in order that people would know Christ as Savior. So in the late 1720s, that's what these guys are doing. And these guys, we've already talked about Whitfield being an Anglican, and now we're talking about uh, Frailing Heising being a Dutch Reformed pastor and Tennant being a Presbyterian pastor. And we're about to talk about Jonathan Edwards being a Congregational pastor. So all of these different threads and denominations are kind of pouring into uh, the Great Awakening, which is it's just amazing to think about that melting pot of denominations and the forcefulness of uh, gospel preaching that occurred in the colonies at that time. And it was needed. Um, a renewal of piety was needed in the colonies, as we outlined before. So next, we're down through. We're down to from the section of revival in America to New England and Jonathan Edwards. Um, Edwards, um, read a biography of Edwards. Uh, I, you will not regret it. You will appreciate it. Uh, you can read Edwards's works if you'd like. They're not easy to read but pick them up and read them and spend some time with that. At least pick up a biography and read about this great man. Edwards is the greatest theologian uh, that America has ever produced. He's also one of the most brilliant men in American history. He just simply is one of our greatest thinkers. And we, a lot of us probably remember Edwards from our studies in either high school or college where we read um, American literature, and we will remember his sermon that was famously has been passed down through the generations called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. However, Edwards was not identified primarily as a fire and brimstone preacher. His preaching emphasized so much more than that, uh, so much more than the judgment of God. His primary goal was to uh, talk about the glory of God and how Christians should delight in sweet fellowship with the Lord. Um, Edwards has played a major role in the life of John Piper. So, you know, you pick up Piper, a lot of his gleanings and his theological bents are because of Edwards, and he loves Edwards. So, as I read this quote, you'll probably think of Piper if you've read that. So, here's a, here's a quote from one of his sermons called Christian Pilgrims. And he says this, God is the highest good of the, of the reasonable creature. 
and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are the scattered beams, of, but God is the sun. These are but the streams, but God is the ocean. So we're seeing the, uh, the glory of God in all things, and being God is our ultimate goal to find enjoyment and joy in this life. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is, um, was a pastor in the 1900s at Westminster Chapel in London, said this about uh, Edwards. Remember, Jones, Lloyd-Jones is not an American. He says this about Edwards in relation to some other theologians. He says, Indeed, I am tempted, perhaps foolishly, to compare the Puritans to the Alps, Luther and Calvin to the Himalayas, and Jonathan Edwards to Mount Everest. So you can see Dr. Jones, the good doctor, held Jonathan Edwards in high esteem. Just some brief biography about Edwards as he becomes a pastor. 1729, he succeeds his grandfather, um, Solomon Stoddard, at the Congregational Church in Northampton as the main pastor. And uh, one thing that's interesting about Stoddard, he and Edwards had a different view on who should receive the Lord's Supper. So here we are again, talking about uh, a break with people because of the Lord's Supper or baptism. And they had a differing view on that. Stoddard thought it was, ne- Stoddard thought it was necessary that everyone in the commonwealth should receive the Lord's Supper, uh, kind of like we talked about the halfway covenant last week. Uh, but L- Edwards believed that the uh, cup of communion, um, the, the, um, the bread and the cup, were for Christians alone. So at some point, that's going to get Edwards in trouble, not just yet. 1734, 1735, so we already have these revival-like impulses, things happening in the middle colonies, but revival breaks out in 1734 and 35 in Edwards's church through his preaching on justification by faith alone. So not justification by your own righteousness, but justification by faith in Christ alone. And in 1737, so there's People are responding in faith to his messages uh, much differently than they had. 1737, he writes a book about what happened while he was preaching and about this time that had continued through his ministry for those years in the the mid-1730s. And he writes a book, and it's called, and be ready because it's a long one, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in the Conversion of Many Hundred Souls in Northampton and the neighboring towns and villages of the county of Hampshire in the province of Massachusetts Bay in New England. In case you're wondering where it was, it's in this one congregation, and it keeps bubbling out. It says Edwards has other opportunities to preach in other areas as well. So his reporting on this surprising work of God became the model uh, for how pastors described when God was um, using what he would call a surprising works to bring about revival. And this was inspirational to Wesley as he read that faithful narrative. Um, his preaching resulted in conversions as the true gospel was proclaimed. Um, there are some 
reports, in many cases, that there were emotional responses that followed his preaching. Tears and sorrowful repentance occurred as the message was preached when people were convicted by the Holy Spirit through preaching. Yet Edwards was not attempting to elicit extreme emotional response. He wanted people to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. Um, And Edwards is a serious man. He's not, as we'll talk about Whitfield later, he is not uh, like a a dramatist as he preaches. He's a very serious um, and, uh, I guess I would say, concise man with his words, but he uses a lot of words to preach because he's very thorough. Uh, Lives were changed, and people became more concerned with living out the Christian life. So not only did people get saved, but they were truly converted, and they started living lives that were consistent with being Christians. This had a major impact on society in New England. It also began to permeate in other areas, including Connecticut, in 1746, though, he wrote, he wrote another book. It's called A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections. So some of the people that were concerned about uh, the revival and the work that was happening there were concerned about the emotional uh, responses that were occurring. But Edwards describes in his book Concerning Religious Affections what was the aim or what was the result of this faithful proclamation and preaching. So in Religious Affections, he describes that true Christianity is not based on the quantity and intensity of religious emotions, but instead, it is present, true Christianity, where a changed heart is, has a love for God and has sought God's pleasure. So he argues against those who oppose the emotional aspects of the awakening he said that was not what he nor his fellow revivalists aimed for in their preaching. So he's kind of looking back on the previous decade when he writes uh, religious affections. However, this is happening in the mid-1730s, and it's continuing throughout the 1730s. And in 1739, he invites George Whitfield to preach in New England. So let's talk about Whitfield for a little bit. And we have just a little bit more time, and we'll touch on several things with Whitfield's life, and then we'll wrap it up next week. So George Whitfield is one of the most famous people in America in the 1700s, probably the most famous person in all of the English empire in the 1700s that's not a monarch. Um, And Whitfield's life was spent preaching. If you think of one word with Whitfield, you should think of preaching. Uh, In the book that I referenced, Arnold Dallimore says, his whole life may be said to have been consumed in the delivery of one continuous or scarcely interrupted sermon. And I love this quote from J.C. Ryle as well. It's on your handout. The facts of Whitfield's history are almost entirely of one complexion. One year was just like another, and to attempt to follow him would be only going repeatedly over the same ground. From 1739 to the year of his death in 1770, a period of 31 years, his life was one uniform employment. He was eminently a man of one thing and always about his master's business. 
from Sunday mornings to Saturday nights, from January 1st to December 31st, excepting when he laid aside by illness, he was almost incessantly preaching Christ and going about the world and treating men to repent and to come to Christ and to be saved. Just an amazing thing for this 31-year history of George Whitfield that he was faithful to preach. Where did he preach? He first preached outdoor, as we said, in England, Scotland, and Wales. Um, and at that point, he was not a part of the Anglican establishment. And the, anyway, the crowds couldn't handle the churches couldn't handle the crowds he was attracting. In January of 1740, through the summer of 1740, he preached up and down the eastern seaboard from Georgia to New York. And then the fall of 1740, he uh, fulfilled uh, Jonathan Edwards' request to come to New England, and there he preached. By the time he completed his 1740 preaching circuit, it's estimated that 25% of the American colonists had heard him preach. That's staggering, absolutely staggering. The numbers I gave you earlier were in 1750, so the numbers would be a little bit smaller. Uh, but we're talking millions and millions, a couple million people at least, and he spoke, and 25% of them heard him preach because he preached constantly while he was there in 1740. And in fact, um, he didn't take up residence in America, but he returned to England, and uh, he actually came back to America six other times to do outdoor preaching revivals. And he actually died in America in 1770 in Massachusetts. So think about that. If he came to America a total of seven times, and he died the last time, that means he crossed the Atlantic 13 times. Uh, some other just incredible uh, statistics that historians have come up with. It's approximated that he spoke in public for those 31 years over 1,000 times each year. Of, so that's 1,000 times for 30 years, and that's 30,000 times he spoke in public. 18,000 of those times would have been sermons, and 12,000 would have been just talks or exhortations to smaller groups of people. But if he, that means if he preached or taught or spoke 1,000 times a year, that means for the most part he preached two and a half times every, or he spoke two and a half times every day for 30 years. It's unbelievable. Um, it's, it's approximated that he would preach or teach between 40 and 60 hours each week of his 30 plus years in ministry. So that's, that's it's just a staggering amount of preaching. He did preach. He didn't prepare um, preaching beforehand. He would study, but he didn't write out a manuscript. He preached um, extemporaneously, if I can say that word right. I don't have somebody here to correct me. Um, so that's where he preached and how often he preached. To whom did he preach? Um, he preached to anyone who wanted to come to his meetings, from the wealthy aristocrat to the poor farmer, and even to the enslaved people of the South. His main emphasis were those who believed who he believed had been neglected by the established churches. By the time he died, it's so at the previous stat I gave you is that first trip in 1740, he had preached to 25% of the colonists. By the time he died in 
1770, it's believed that 80% of the American colonists had heard him preach. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, we'll get into this, but just real quick, one little side on uh, Whitfield. He, just, he, he was just a naturally gifted uh, orator, speaker, uh, presenter in front of people. Uh, just he had a unique uh, giftedness from the Lord, and he was using his unique giftedness from the Lord to proclaim his truth and to call men and women to repentance. Um, so uh, next week, I'm ready to conclude because I think there's just so much meat here we need to talk about, but we'll talk about what was the nature of his preaching? What did he preach about? What, how did he, uh, in what ways was he uh, calling people to repentance? What was this gospel? Um, it is important for you to realize that Whitfield embraced the doctrines of grace and the historic Protestant Reformed tradition of doc, the doctrine of salvation. Um, we're also talking about what the impact of his preaching was, how it impacted uh, culture, how it impacted uh, politics, how it impacted a lot of different things. We'll talk about his legacy as well. And then next week as well, we'll wrap up with one final um, section on just what are the results of the Great Awakening. So Whitfield plays an important role in that, but what are the general results and what happens to American culture as people are called to repentance and to live lives of piety and holiness before the Lord. So those are the last things we will talk about. Um, I'm going to pray, and then uh, you guys, we will join our brothers and sisters in our worship service in a few minutes. So let's pray. God, we thank you. God, we thank you that you are have built your church and that you continue to build your church. Oh, Lord, we praise you for imperfect uh, men of the past who were faithful to proclaim your gospel. Lord, I thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in saving men like John Wesley and Charles Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Lord, we praise you for uh, the gospel that draws sinners into relationship with you through Jesus' perfect sacrifice for us. So, Lord, we praise you for that gospel. Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word proclaimed and to pray together um, and to sing your praises. Um, even though, Lord, we are scattered, Lord, I pray you would continue to strengthen and unify our body. Praise you for this church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.